0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Cato Institute's F.A. Hayek Auditorium. I'm Jim Harper, Director of Information Policy Studies here at Cato. And I'll be your master of ceremonies for the discussion today. As a reminder, I encourage you to silence your phones or turn them off. Not so much for us, but because you'll look technically inept if your phone goes off uh, during today's event. What can be said about copyright? that doesn't anger somebody somewhere. Uh, not very much. And uh, today's discussion on copyright has sort of been, been energized, if you will, by, by the recent release of, of a RFC memo uh, criticizing copyright policy and calling it for reform, and then uh, the withdrawal of that memo. It's uh, encouraged quite a bit of discussion. Uh, as usual, it seems, with, with copyright, there's been more vitriol than necessary. Um, and hopefully we won't have any of that here. Uh, I count all our panelists as friends, and by the transitive property of friendship, they're all friends with each other. Um, <laughs> and I know that, that, that uh, they'll deal with the issues collegially. I think during the Q&A, I expect that we'll be able to do that, but I've promised that I would police any use of ad hominem. I don't expect that to be a problem. So let's turn right to the discussion of the Mercatus published book, Mercatus Center, edited by Jerry Brito, Copyright Unbalanced from Incentive to Excess. Uh, you can find more information about the book and order the book itself at copyrightunbalanced.com. Uh, what I'll do is introduce the speakers, all of them. Then we'll hear from Jerry Brito, who edited the book, Tom W. Bell, who authored one of the chapters, and then we'll have comments from Mitch Glazer. Uh, after the discussion here on the dais, I think we'll probably have some back and forth. We'll go to you for some questions and answers. Uh, then we'll retire to Cato's Winter Garden for sandwiches and happy agreement on all the issues that come up today. Uh, first, the introductions. Jerry Brito is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and director of its technology policy program. He also served at, serves as an adjunct professor of law at George Mason University. His research focuses on technology and telecommunications policy, government transparency and accountability, and the regulatory process. His JD came from George Mason University School of Law and his BA in political science from Florida International University. Uh, Brito creates cool websites from time to time, among them, openregs.com, which is an alternative interface to federal government uh, regulatory dockets, and he's the the co-creator of an accountability website called Stimulus Watch. After Jerry, we'll hear from Tom W. Bell. Uh, He has a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Southern California, a Master of Arts from the University of Chicago, and his Juris Doctor, I'm sorry, Master of Arts from the University of Southern California. Uh, and a Juris Doctor from the University of Chicago, where he served both as a member of the University of Chicago Law Review and as Articles Editor and Co-Founder of the University of Chicago Legal Roundtable. Armed with that educational background, uh, he joined the faculty of Chapman University School of Law in 1998, where he specializes in high-tech legal issues. He's written on a variety of of papers on intellectual property and Internet law. Uh, uh, His teaching began in 1995 when he became a an assistant professor of law uh, at the University of Dayton School of Law. During a one-year leave of absence from from the University of Dayton School of Law, uh, he achieved his highest level so far in his career, which was to serve for a year as director of telecommunications and technology studies at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. Today, he teaches intellectual property internet law, and he has an advanced seminar on copyright law, Entertainment law, international entertainment law, tort law, and contract law, among others. With comments, helpful and constructive, friendly comments, Mitch Glazier. Uh, Mitch is the is the senior executive vice president of the Recording Industry Association of America. In his more than ten year <laughs> in his more than ten year tenure at the RIAA, uh, Mitch has, has managed a variety of initiatives for the industry including the Pro-IP Act in 2008, which established the country's first intellectual property enforcement coordinator in the executive office of the president, and the Higher Education Opportunity Act of 2008, which sought to reduce illegal downloading of copyrighted works on college campuses. Before joining IRIAA, uh, Glazer achieved his highest uh, career uh, apex as a colleague of mine on the House Judiciary Committee. These are jokes, by the way, when I talk (laughs) about career apexes. Uh, he was he a was, uh, uh, higher level than I was. A chief counsel at, uh, uh, for intellectual property on the Judiciary Committee in the House of Representatives, where he h- helped steer uh, a series of copyright reforms, including the 1998 Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act, and 1997's No Electronic Theft Act. Glazier is also from Illinois, served as a clerk to the Honorable Judge Wayne R. Anderson, Uh, He practiced at the law firm of Neil, Gerber, and Eisenberg as an associate in commercial litigation. Educationally, he graduated from Northwestern and Vanderbilt Law School. Uh, Mitch serves on the boards of Musicians on Call, the American Association of People with Disabilities, and the Internet Education Foundation. So with those introductions of of an excellent panel, we'll have an excellent discussion, starting with Jerry Brito presenting his book, Copyright Unbalanced, From Incentive to Access. Jerry?
1: Thank you very much,
0: Jim,
2: and thank you all for coming. Uh, This is also a bit of a homecoming uh, for me. I was uh, here at Cato for three years. Was it the apex of your career? Well, I'm not going to say that. Uh, I'll (laughs) let you say that. Uh, And while I was here, I had the pleasure of working with Adam Thierer and Wayne Cruz, and we worked together on putting together Copy Fights, uh, which was released 10 years ago uh, uh, this month. And both uh, Mitch Glazier and Tom Bell have chapters in this book. Uh, and the thing is, is when I worked on this book with Adam and Wayne, I got to see firsthand how divisive uh, copyright can be among libertarians uh, and conservatives. And this has been throughout our sort of uh, philosophical uh, ideological history. right? You have folks from Lysander Spooner, Who believed in absolute perpetual copyright uh, ownership in ideas, uh, to folks like Tom Palmer, who uh, believed just the opposite—that any sort of state-imposed exclusivity on ideas uh, or expressions uh, is a uh, violation of your natural rights. But I always thought that there was more common ground than we let on with our ideological uh, sort of squabbling, right? And our book. Copyright unbalanced is sort of a case to try to find that that common ground. So, I mean, even if we disagree about first principles, what we're saying in our book is that I think we can agree about the current copyright system, right? We're not discussing copyright ideally, but the current copyright system that we have right now. And what we're saying is that if you're skeptical of government power, you should also be skeptical of the ever-expanding restrictions that copyright places on your liberties the ever-increasing trend towards criminalization of even minor infringements, right? You should be skeptical of increasing use of civil asset forfeiture to enforce uh, copyright. Uh, You should be skeptical of increased regulation of technology to protect uh, against piracy. And you should be skeptical of increased use of compulsory licensing and price fixing. These are all things that we're skeptical about in other contexts, and, and maybe it should be the same in copyright. So again, our our goal with the book is to show that copyright reform is not just compatible with a strong belief in property rights and in free markets, but that in fact it it should be the uh, limited government free market position. Now, one reason I think that conservatives and libertarians overlook copyright as a big government program is that we sometimes engage in a kind of logical thinking that goes like this. We think property is good, right? I think we all agree on on that. Uh, It allows uh, markets to work. Uh, So property is good. Copyright is property. Therefore, longer and stronger uh, copyright is great. And I think that uh, that falls apart a little bit when you think about copyright uh, the way the founders did. Copyright really is a different kind of property. It's different from traditional property. Uh, traditional property, like real property, uh, your house, your land, or personal property, uh, predates the Constitution. Right. So before the Constitution existed, uh, property existed, and common law recognized it. Not so for copyright. Uh, copyright is created by the Constitution. Um, how many times would you do you think that the word property? is used in the Constitution, the main text of the Constitution. Anybody have a guess? Huh? Four times. In the main text?
3: You're counting the amendments. I'm not counting the amendments. Oh. I'm
2: counting the main text.
3: I can't tell you that. I counted them all, but I yeah, included it's just, the amendments. It's just one. Just one.
2: Uh, and it's, not, it's only to sort of talk about the, the Congress's power to sell uh, property of the United States. The other times it's mentioned in the amendments, it's it's mentioned to restrict government's ability to take property from you. So what does this tell us? It tells us that the founders understood a copyright, uh, sorry, that property existed. The Constitution is merely uh, recognizing uh, that it exists. Copyright, on the other hand, uh, is created by the Constitution. Uh, Constitution gives Congress the power to establish copyright, if it so chooses to do. So what does this tell us? Tell us? Uh, it tells us that without the Constitution, we would not Have copyright, yet we we would have property. Do you you see how that's uh, different? Copyright is created by the Constitution to solve a market failure. Informational goods are public goods, and so you probably end up with uh, less uh, than an ideal amount because you're not providing an incentive to create, and so copyright uh, attempts uh, to solve that. Copyright is also uh, limited in time, whereas property rights, traditional property rights, are perpetual. So, what you want to do with copyrights, you want to offer just enough uh, to incentivize the creation of uh, creative works, but not any more and By the way, what i 'm describing here is sort of the utilitarian approach to copyright that the founders included in uh, the constitution but even even if you want to take a moral rights approach, a natural rights approach to to uh, uh, copyright, I think you'd still find that it must be limited and. I, you know, here's, I, who I think is a good authority on this would be Ayn Rand. You can't think of somebody who was a, a stronger champion for property rights, especially property, property rights in the creations of, of, of man's uh, intellectual faculties. And here's Ayn Rand quoting from uh, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. She says, and I quote, A right to intellectual property cannot be exercised in perpetuity. It would lead to the opposite of the very principle on which it is based. It would lead not to the earned reward of achievement, but to the unearned support of parasitism. So even Ayn Rand is saying you you must have uh, limits to copyrights. So if there must be limits, somebody must set what those limits are. It can't be divined uh, uh, through philosophical inquiry. It has to be set politically. So copyright is a statutorily created property, right? I think Tom and I sort of disagree on the semantics of of whether we want to call it property, per se. But I think we agree on, on what it is. Um, and I'd say it's more akin to something like tradable emissions permits, which also exist, also created by Congress th- through statute to solve uh, a uh, market failure, or uh, maybe also akin to taxicab medallions, right? These things are property. They're very valuable. They're tradable. They exist in the market. In fact, <laughs> uh, legislatures create these things uh, so that they can be traded in the market to solve market failures, and that's wonderful. But they're different, right? So you can, tomorrow, New York City could double the number of taxi cab medallions, which would reduce the value of existing ones. But that wouldn't be a takings, right? It's just, it's just legislatively, you can set what that number is. So copyright is a planned order. It's not an emergent order. So as a result, uh, I think copyright is subject to what Friedrich Hayek uh, would call a knowledge problem, right? And we as libertarians and conservatives are very aware of this problem uh, in many other areas, right, in regulation, for example. Uh, it's quite simply that the information required for rational economic planning is distributed amongst individuals. Uh, and so, therefore, it's outside uh, the knowledge of any one central planning uh, authority. So. How do we know what the right contours of copyright are? And it's not just the length of the term of copyright. That's one of the contours. But there are many other contours that you have to keep in mind. What is patentable? It's patentable. Listen to me. What is copyrightable? Uh, So for example, today, boat boat haul designs uh, can have a copyright, but aircraft designs cannot. Poetry uh, is copyrightable, but uh, jokes are not. Right? And, and so you, you, know, you have to set those limits, those contours somehow. But how do we know what the optimum ones are? Uh, the founders, for example, uh, in their copyright acts, established 14-year term, renewable for 14 more, and they had formalities, which mean you had to register and renew. Today, you have copyright of life of the author plus 70 years, and you don't have formalities. How do we know uh, that the founders got it Right or that they got it wrong, actually, and that today we have it right? Some, you know, is it somewhere in between? It's really difficult to know. In fact, I think it's, it's in some ways it's unknowable. And I think what the Tom will show uh, is that while we can't know precisely, we can look around and have an idea that maybe we've gone uh, a bit too far. And let me hasten to add, just because we don't know uh, what the optimal amount of copyright to, to afford creators is, we also don't know by that fact that it should be zero. Right, we probably know it. It's not zero, um, uh, so uh, you know we don't know that as well. Um, what it does tell us, though, is that we have to be humble and deliberate when we go about setting the contours of, of copyright, because a mistake in either direction will introduce inefficiencies in either direction, whether we have too little copyright or indeed too much. Which brings me to what I think is sort of the second problem, just uh, just the political problem of copyright, which is who sets these limits? Who sets the, uh, what this balance should be? Well, it's Congress. And Congress is not known for its humility or sort of really deliberate uh, ability. So because the contracts of copyright are planned by Congress, uh, you have a public choice problem, which again, libertarians and conservatives understand all too well one of concentrated benefits and diffused costs. Uh, You can think of, for example, ethanol subsidies or sugar quotas, uh, where organized special interests um, lobby for one particular set of rules that uh, the cost of which benefit them but fall upon uh, the rest of us, the public at large, which is diffused and not well organized and and, uh, uh, only feels it very little and doesn't have an incentive to go and, uh, and fight this. I think you see this in copyright organized special interests in Hollywood in the recording industry in uh, publishers lobby for stronger and longer copyright and this longer and stronger copyright necessarily comes at, uh, at the expense of the public uh, because it is saddled with uh, stronger restrictions on their speech and on their use of uh, traditional property and what does the public get in return for this well it 's not clear you might think that they you know we would get uh, more and better creative works, but I'm not sure that 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 is uh, very clear. And by the way, I want to hasten to add as well something that um, was brought up to me yesterday. There are certainly organized special interests uh, on the copyright reform side of the aisle. That's absolutely the case. And you can imagine, for example, internet companies or uh, uh, consumer electronic uh, corporations uh, want to reform copyright as much as I do. But the fact that there are special interests on this side of of the debate, uh, does not change the public choice dynamic you still have one side that is asking for longer and stronger copyrights that come uh, uh, that basically come from the public that come at the expense of the public uh, and indeed, you know the expansion of copyright has only been in one direction in fact it 's expansion sort tautology there, uh, especially in the last fifty years we 've never seen and in fact, maybe Tom will talk about this maybe just once. A very tiny way, we've seen Congress dial back. We've only seen Congress ever dial uh, in one direction towards more. And I mean, Mark Lemley uh, at Stanford sort of notes this. He says, quote, terms of protection are longer. The number of things that are copyrightable has increased. It is easier to qualify for copyright protection. Copyright owners have broader rights to control uses of their works, and penalties are harsher. In addition, Congress has created entirely new rights. So copyright looks... Now less like a sort of uh, uh, it looks less less like a balanced system of incentives and more like an out of control government program granting subsidies and privileges to special interests uh it's also regulatory uh copyright has been moving steadily from being more uh, sort of looking more like a property uh, that is you know it's, it's the rights and its contours are adjudicated through common law courts it's been moving to uh, be more regulatory, where bureaucracies uh, either set rates uh, for copyright or uh, allow, you know, allow, or sorry or disallow uh, particular uses of technology. And you also have civil asset forfeiture, uh, where copyrights increasing you know, copyright uh, authorities are increasingly using civil asset forfeiture, which means that there are ex-party proceedings uh, where they can seize your property, in many cases, it is uh, domain names, uh, without a trial. Uh, without a hearing of any kind. Um, And and this is really uh, worrying. So finally, why now? Why are we talking 10 years after copy fights and we really didn't reach much agreement here, uh, why is it that we're talking about this now? I think it's that the time is right now for a new vision, uh, uh, for a new sort of free market perspective on copyright, and that's what we're trying to do uh, in the book. And the time is right uh, in in sort of the... The idea came to me that we needed to have this book now. The time had finally come to do this book after SOPA, uh, the Stop Online Piracy Act, and its uh, uh, the, the, sort of the, the protests against it, and ultimately failed. Uh, what you saw in the battle against SOPA is that it was led in part by Tea Party activists, uh, which you which you would maybe think was a little strange. But then you saw uh, Republican co-sponsors of SOPA were the first to abandon it and, and turn their backs on the bill. Uh, and who was the uh, one person who stuck till the very end, to the bitter end with SOPA and went down with the ship defending it? It was Al Franken. Um, and I think conservatives, uh, or I should say in particular Republicans, uh, took note of this. And as the GOP hopefully is looking to evolve from being a pro-business party to being a pro-market party that attracts new voters, especially young voters. I think that they will want to look at copyright, because copyright allows them to show leadership uh, when they want to show that they are against crony capitalism, when they want to show that they are against regulatory excesses. Um, As Jim mentioned, the Republican Study Committee recently retracted a memo um, about copyright. And I think what that did is that it highlighted the tension between the old pro-business party uh, and a new generation of pro-market leaders uh, that's emerging. And let me be clear, this sort of thinking on copyright is not radical for conservatives and libertarians. Um, Recently in National Review, uh, James V. DeLong, uh, who's a well-known conservative economist uh, in the technology and telecom field, wrote an essay about the Republican Study Committee uh, memo. And for those of you who know Jim DeLong, he's a very strong uh, proponent of copyright. In fact, here in Copyfights, The first chapter is by somebody called Tom Bell. We're going to hear about making the case very similar to the one we're making today. The second chapter is called Defending Intellectual Property by James B. DeLong. So uh, uh, James is is a very, very respected uh, defender of intellectual property rights. And this is what he wrote in the National Review essay. Uh, He was critical of the memo, but he nevertheless said the following. He said, here's the common ground. Now, I'm going to quote from him. He said, quote, some of the specific problems noted in the uh, RSC paper are elsewhere and elsewhere are very real. Copyright terms are too long. Rights are overly convoluted and hard to pin down. Transactions costs are too high. The easy availability of copying is atrophying the creative community. Orphan works, for which the copyright holders are unknown, present problems. The list is long. We probably need a clean sheet rewrite of copyright law. Hallelujah, there is common ground among conservatives and libertarians on this issue, Uh, certainly at a very high philosophical uh, level where we need reform. Now, Jim is not optimistic that we'll see much of this. I am an optimist, and I would point to the specific proposals that Jim DeLong uh, is making. He says, again, I'll quote him, quote, "'Many specific reforms should be enacted. My list would include shorter copyright terms, a requirement of registration and renewal to show seriousness,' a one-time requirement of registration of existing works to get rid of the orphan works problem, which I think is phenomenal, a very, very inspired idea, and centralized databases to reduce transactions cost. And I think this this sort of list of uh, reform proposals, which this defender of intellectual property is, is making, is going to match up very nicely with what Tom's going to talk about when he talks about the reforms that he suggests in our book. Um, so I think I'll stop there and just sort of underline that as we say you know, in the book, a belief... That we need to reform copyright is the correct limited government position, and it's perfectly compatible with a strong penchant for property rights and free markets. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you Jim for hosting us today very happy to be back here at the Cato Institute and I salute you on your new digs are very impressive first time (laughs) I've been here it's delightful I also want to thank uh, you Jerry for working with me on this book and also I'm pleased to announce that Jerry and I just yesterday meeting on this we're going to uh, publish a book together Uh, Mercatus is gonna publish my book intellectual privilege and look for that uh, later this year in which I will be able to expand perhaps on some of the arguments I'll be making today. Today I'm going to relate with, uh, to you the five reforms that I discussed in the chapter I wrote for Jerry's book, which is now released. And Let's start with this story. In 2009, Samantha Tumpak, a Chicago-area woman, was at a uh, surprise birthday party for her sister at a movie. It was one of these uh, vampire movies, Twilight. And she had a new camera. She was playing with its features. And she realized, oh, it's got this video recorded. And she recorded about three minutes of the film and you know her, her sister's reaction to the surprise party. And incidentally, she caught some of the film in the background. And she was talking the whole time, three minutes out of this long film. In no way was she going to be substituting her video for the movie. They were not going to lose any revenue. And she was put in jail for two days. She faced federal felony charges that could have landed her in jail for three years. She ultimately got off the hook. She indeed brought a countersuit, uh, alleging intentional infliction of emotional distress, false imprisonment, some other claims. So she got off the hook, and that's good. And this is just one anecdote, but it's one of many anecdotes. It's not the only one I could tell. And you might say, I know we're amongst policy wonks here. Got that in my blood, too. And we shouldn't do policy based on anecdotes. But look, real people matter. That's why we care about this. It's not just the numbers. But I'll give you some numbers. This is a more bird's eye view of the copyright problem. This is a chart showing the growth in copyright terms over time. You can see, as Jerry mentioned, the 1790 Copyright Act had a maximum term of just 28 years, two 14-year terms. Many people, I'm sure, only got 14 years, and then they failed to renew their copyrights. If you look on the far side, the other opposite side of this chart over on the right, you'll see that purple chunk is the result of the Sonny Bono Copyright Protection Act of 1998. There you see it kicking in, 1998. And now, of course, as again Jerry mentioned, it's the, your standard term is life of the author plus 70 years. It's a huge increase. And note to the trend, it's always up, always up. There's something else interesting going on. You might wonder, why aren't these simply columns? They have this funny L-shape. Why? Because when Congress has increased the term of copyright, they've made it retroactive. So they found people who already did the hard work it takes to create a work of genius, who were already incentivized to do that and publish it, and said, hey, here's some more goodies. I guess none of those authors said, oh, no, thank you, I'm good. I guess they didn't even have that choice, really. Congress said, like it or not, here you go. This shows a troubling trend. I guess we could say there's been copyright reform, but it is almost always in one direction. I've only found one instance. I'll talk about this in my book, Intellectual Privilege. only found one instance where lawmakers rolled back the copyright powers just a little. It had to do with making sure that stamps issued by the USPS were in the public domain. And it turns out that's ineffectual now. I've actually talked to the post office about this because I wanted to reproduce one of their stamps. And they said, we're not a government agency anymore. (laughs) So that one is now moot. Basically, it's all more and more and more. So this is a bird's eye view of the problem. And now let me talk about the five specific reforms that I propose. The first one is quite direct, quite simple. It's to go back to what I call the founder's copyright. The same gentleman who ratified the Constitution in 1789 almost immediately thereafter passed the first Federal Copyright Act. We can't read what was in their heads, of course. And more generally, the the material we have to describe what the founders thought about copyright is extraordinarily thin. So I think the best evidence of what they had in mind was in the 1790 Copyright Act. Actions speak louder than words. What did they do in the 1790 Copyright Act? Well, it was very parsimonious, I can tell you that. Here's a comparison of the number of words in the 1790 Copyright Act. (laughs) It's very elegant, just a couple of pages. And here we have the present act. It's about 70 times as much material. And let me tell my fellow copyright geeks, I've been very careful about this. I have not included the Vessel Hull Design Protection Act, the Semiconductor Mask Protection Works Act, or all the bootlegging statutes that lawmakers have passed. This is just the core of copyright. We could have even more words there. It's already too much. So I propose, if it was good enough for the founders, let's bring it back. Let's go back to the 1790 Copyright Act. And what would that get us? Well, as I already mentioned, it would get us a shorter term. I think for most authors, 28 years is plenty. Think about your standard software writer. Are they thinking about 50 years into the future? There probably won't even be machines around to run their works. And by the way, I've uh, (laughs) I've talked Jerry into publishing uh, Intellectual Privilege, my forthcoming book, under these terms. So we're effectively going to release this book under the 1790 Copyright Act. And we hope other people will set an example for other people to follow. Because if it was good enough for the founders, good enough for me. What else did the founders do? They limited copyrights to copying of the whole work. Effectively, they were only worried about pirate editions. Whereas, of course, now, any copying, you take a long paragraph out of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, and you could easily face sanctions under the present act. Also, if you create a derivative work, a translation, a movie, founders didn't care about that, now it's a big deal. You can see there, too, there's some other rights. If you were to give a public reading of a book or display it publicly without permission, all these things get you into trouble. The founders only protected maps, books, and charts. That is all. Today, copyright covers pretty much any fixed expression. If it's some sort of original expression of authorship and it's in a tangible medium that preserves it, it's covered by copyright automatically, automatically. Now, you might wonder about this. What did the founders have in mind? I understand why they didn't protect software. They didn't even know about such a thing. But look, they knew about sculpture. They knew about music. They knew about architecture. They knew about paintings. They knew about prints. And they deliberately did not protect it. Now, we can't read what was in their heads, as I said. But I do have a theory about this. And it goes to the other thing the Constitution, the founders said about copyright, and that's in the Constitution. And he said it's to to promote the progress of science and the useful arts. I think they had a very hard-nosed view of copyright. They said, it's to get things done. We're building a country here. We want to make sure we have maps of our harbors. We want to make sure we have books that people can use, perhaps to read about agriculture. Uh, they've, they've, They've studied this, and I've looked at this research, about the sorts of books that were around in the founders era. The novel had hardly even begun to appear on the scene. Most of the books in the founders' libraries, most of their works are actually theologically oriented. But there were many works also of history, political philosophy, agronomy. Useful works, useful works. That's what they cared about. So I think they deliberately thought about music, sculpture, paintings, and said, no, those are fripperies. Those are luxuries. Those are fine things. And we love them. We're cultured men. But to invoke the power of the state To protect those is a bit excessive. Let's only do it for the things that really matter. Also, they limited the remedies afforded to copyright infringement to just statutory damages and destruction of copies. And you can see there how very far copyright goes today. It's quite frightening. As Samantha Toompak's story shows, you can land up in jail for quite incidental offenses. Now, this would, as a consequence, force the United States to leave the Berne Convention. And it's a fine group of countries that have joined the Berne Convention. I don't dispute that. I do dispute that this has always been to the advantage of the citizens of those countries. I'll tell you a story. Charles Dickens wrote his wonderful novels while under the protection of English copyright law. And they were not under the law of the day, this is before the Berne Convention, protected in the United States. And Charles Dickens liked to make money for all his talk about the evils of the love of money. So he actually sailed to America and gave readings of his novels and made a ton of money. He was apparently a really great reader. People loved hearing him. He almost worked himself to death, made a ton of money. This was before Byrne. And what Byrne does, Byrne would have afforded Dickens' automatic protection in the United States. But think of what happened without Byrne. Did the people in the United States have access to Dickens' novels? Indeed, they did. As soon as he published a novel in England, someone would get on a fast boat, go to America, make copies, and sell it. Americans had access to Dickens' work. Did Dickens have enough of an incentive to write his novels strictly based on the English market? Evidently so. Did Dickens make money in America? Indeed he did. Everybody came out ahead under this system without burn. Now maybe Dickens didn't make as much money as he'd like. I often hear this complaint from people currently enjoying the benefits of copyright. I'm not making as much money as I'd like. And I say to those people, take a number and get in line. (laughs) Who does? That's not the problem. The question is whether you're making enough money to get off your rear end and create expressive works. I'm going to quickly describe a little bit of legal jujitsu. This is really for the copyright geeks among us. Legal jujitsu. I happen to be myself a practitioner of what we call the gentle art, and it's often misunderstood. You look at a bunch of sweaty guys rolling around, and it's very confusing. But one of the principles of jujitsu, like judo, is to use your opponent's attack against them. And you can see this in the law. It's a very subtle thing. I'll be quick about it. Read, Please read Jerry's book to get the details. There's a doctrine in copyright law that's concerned with this problem. That if you have a copyright and you combine it with very restrictive licensing terms, you're getting too much. So, for example, you release a book and you include a license, maybe a shrink wrap license. You have to take the shrink wrap license off the book to read it, and there it says, no public criticism of this book allowed. So, you don't even get your fair use rights. Courts would probably, this doctrine is not fully developed, not as fully developed as I'd like in the courts, but courts would probably not like that. It's too much. That's copyright plus censorship. And what would courts do under the misuse doctrine? They would strike only the copyright rights. So you would still be allowed to enforce your license terms, assuming you had a valid license, but not the copyright terms. It's a very interesting result. The reason I like this is because it opens an exit from a world where everyone relies on copyright to a world where people begin to learn to stand on their own two feet using just their good old common law rights the rights they can get through their voluntary agreements with others, their licensing terms, the rights they can protect via trade secret, the rights they can protect via unfair competition. If someone passes off somebody else's work as their own, that'd be unfair competition. The common law already does afford a lot of protections to authors and other creators, but people have gotten lazy. They haven't developed these alternative marketing schemes for the most part because they have copyright. This doctrine could gently nudge them out the door and help them develop these marketing models where people can make money without copyright. Here's another thing I suggest. Let's rethink the sorts of questions we ask about copyright policy. Too often what we hear about is, oh, this author is not making all the money he or she would like to make. Or if we don't protect copyright, there's not going to be as much money flowing into the movie business. And people in Hollywood will be suffering. Now, I understand that concern. If I worked in Hollywood, I'd be very concerned about that. But that's not the question. The question is whether or not We, the public, have adequate access to expressive works. Copyright is about promoting the progress of science and the useful arts. It's not about making any one author or industry group rich. And I just ask you, when you look around at the world today, do you say, we suffer a paucity of expressive works? I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I have to run away from it. I mean, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, this fantastic cornucopia of the arts that we enjoy. But I don't think there's any market failure. And think again of the founders. Think of the world they lived in. They didn't have music on tap. Sculptures, I guess they had to travel to see them. They didn't have many paintings. They hardly had any of the things we enjoy. And what did they say? Maps, books, and charts. 28 years. That's all we need. Well, maybe they were a lot braver and stronger than us, but not that much braver and stronger. Lastly, let's talk a little bit about about the rhetoric of copyright. Now look, I'm not trying to pull any tricks here. It's just that language reveals truth, and lawyers really care about language. Secure facility, is that what that is, or is it a cage? Well look, you can argue for both things, and both illuminate important distinctions. The same with copyright. We can call it property if you want. It does have some property-like features. I like those features. I like that it's alienable, that you can subdivide your rights that you can go to the copyright office and figure out who owns the rights to work. You can even mortgage a copyright. Those are the best things about copyright. But that does not make it property. It's fundamentally different. It's non-rivalrous in consumption. It's created solely as an artificial statutory invention. There's no common law copyright. I know some of you copyright geeks have heard that phrase, but you should know better than to recognize it as copyright. It's a privilege. And that's what I have found people who work for example, with emission trading permits called it. They don't call it property. They say, well, they call it permits. We could call it permits, too. It starts with a P. It's all good, as long as we don't call it property. And what's the problem with property? It misleads. It misleads. It's tricked a lot of my my fellow friends of property, I think, into embracing copyrights. And I say to them, look, I love property, too. And this is not something that qualifies for that noble name. Indeed, I've started seeing this argument. I've seen people in academia say, you know, copyright is like property, yes. And in copyright, we have the fair use defense. You know, we should have that everywhere in property. Now, when somebody starts looking at my house and thinking that they have a fair use right to camp in my front yard, I've got a problem with that. Basically, what we have is dilution of the noble mark property. It's being borrowed. We have free riders who are taking a good, solid word and applying it where it doesn't belong. Likewise, I suggest we not talk about owners, but rather holders of copyrights, and that we talk not about protections, but restrictions, because that's, that's how copyright works. With copyright, you can restrict other people from saying things that you don't want them to say, from repeating your own words. To conclude, look, I'm not going to pretend this is the most important issue in the world. There's more important things going on in Washington, I'm sure. But what's illustrative about copyright is it, it reminds me a lot about basically the problem of government in general. To someone who cares about liberty, government is, at best, a necessary evil. Copyright's the same thing. At best, it's a necessary evil. And here's the question I leave you with. What do you call a necessary evil after it grows unnecessarily powerful? Thank you.
4: Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim, for, um, for hosting this. We need more conversations at this level. And um, I have the most luxurious job today. I didn't have to write anything. I Like a movie reviewer, I get to watch the movie and then I get to just criticize it. And um, uh, I uh, obviously have many, many disagreements with a lot of things that have been said, but I wanna sort of divide them into a few uh, areas or a few what I think are fallacies that are being promoted. But I wanna end sort of where Jerry ended and cite the same um, blog by Jim DeLong in the National Review. Regardless of first principles and our disagreements about them, regardless of whether or not you view copyright as property, most of the problems that we are talking about today are problems of effect, problems of licensing, problems of formalities and notification. problems of disparity between federal and state laws or disparity between platforms and how they're treated under the law. These are all things that should be talked about that can be um, worked out, and that I think people can come together and discuss um, with a little bit of intensity and a lot of cooperation and make some progress on. So um, I'll save my olive branch for the end because it's not half as fun, and I'll try and be as provocative as possible in my first few criticisms. Um, I think that the real flaw in Jerry's really well-written introduction to this collection of essays is when he says copyright is a very different animal. In contrast to traditional property, copyright was created by the Constitution. It did not exist in the common law. Without the Constitution's copyright clause, there would be no pre-existing right in creative works, as if the Article One Section 8, Clause 8, all of the sudden created this right, that it didn't pre-exist, it wasn't a natural right, it wasn't part of the natural law, that God didn't give you the talents that you automatically had, that you weren't entitled to use the fruits of your labor or the fruits of your study, that they didn't exist, that somehow they magically came about, and your right to them magically came about when the founders wrote Article One Section 8, Clause 8. Nothing could be further from the truth and it's really, you can't change it by changing the nomenclature. You can't undo almost two centuries of judicial precedent by calling it a privilege instead of a property right. If you look at the words of the people that actually wrote it, it's in direct direct contrast to this fundamental assertion. And the reason why this is so important and the reason why I wanna spend a couple of minutes on this is because everything flows from here. If it is a right then your focus is on the individual, it's on the creator. It is something that the Constitution secures and gives you a right to enforce against other people, and you do it as a case or controversy in a court of law, like you would a civil right or any other pre existing right that is secured by the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't create the right, the Constitution secures the pre existing right. It secures the natural right, and it allows you to enforce it against others who are infringing on it. And it reconciles that with the common good and says they go together. One helps the other. And if your focus is on individual rights, then how you proceed in amending copyright law flows from um, that particular process. If, however, you only focus on the utilitarian tool of promoting the social good and using other people's talents really just as a utilitarian tool to promote the public good. Now you're talking about the public airwaves, right? Now you're talking about spectrum. Now you're talking about something that God didn't give to an individual that they have a pre-existing right in under common law or under natural rights that they can then use the constitutional clause to enforce against others. Now you're talking about something that the government can control, that it can dole out, that it can designate to an agency, that it can basically Regulate. So, what we're talking about here is the difference between a focus on copyright as an individual right, a case or controversy adjudicated in courts, enforced against other people, or nothing but a utilitarian tool of the public good that can then be regulated. Now, if you're scared of big government, which of those philosophies are you going to employ? I would assert that the jujitsu that's going on here is trying to turn the former into the latter and then calling it big government. I think that that is a fallacy. If you look at the words of those who crafted the clause, James Madison on the Continental Congress, which was created and then urged states to create laws before the Constitution said, I'm persuaded that nothing's more properly a man's own than the fruit of his study, and the protection and security of literary property would greatly tend to encourage genius. In Federalist 43, he said, the utility of this power will scarcely be questioned. The copyright of authors has been solemnly adjudged in Great Britain to be a right of common law. In the states, before the Constitution was drafted and adopted, Uh, the state of New Hampshire um, enacted legislation saying, there being no property more peculiarly a man's own than that which is produced by the labor of his mind. And obviously, all this goes back to John Locke and Lockean Principles, who uh, was an incredibly influential philosopher on the founding fathers. But to say that the statute of Anne didn't recognize that this was a property right, I think sort of neglects the language of the Statute of Anne. It explicitly refers to author's property in every such book. It refers to copyright holders as proprietors. Now I know that Professor Bell wants to go back and call them holders instead of owners, but the Statute of Anne says, no, they're not just holders, they're proprietors, because what do you have the right to control more than the fruit of your study? So if you look at the language of Article I, Section 8, Clause 8, it doesn't say Congress creates a right. It says Congress has the power to secure this pre-existing right that you had by God, endowed by the creator, the essence of the Declaration of Independence, that is then put so that it can be reconciled with the public good into the Constitution. And once you jump from what I think is that false assumption to the effect of how you carry it out, you go down a very dangerous regulatory path. And so I would say that if you just look at a utilitarian principle, it's much more Marxian than it, or Marxist than it is something that John Locke would write. If you only look at something or some talent that somebody has that you can then use for the social good however the government sees fit. And the focus isn't on that particular person to uh, ability to secure their exclusive right remember the constitution also has the word exclusive in article 1 section 8 clause 8 then it seems to me that it just becomes something that the government can do whatever it wants with and that is the real danger the second big fallacy that i'd like to point out is that everything that congress has done has only gone in one direction it's only gone in the direction of the owners it's only strengthened copyright I would venture to say that almost every amendment to the Copyright Act over the past many years has focused on limitations and exceptions and business certainty for users, not on strengthening copyright for owners. And if you wanna talk about the number of words in the Copyright Act and why it's so big today under Professor Bell's graphic, it's not because there are a lot of words protecting owners. That's easy. Section 106 is a couple paragraphs. It's one little bundle. Now let's talk about sections 107, 108, 109, 110, 111, 112, 114, 115, 116, 119, and 122, which is a combination of limitations and exceptions and compulsory licenses, which are regulation entering the Copyright Act so that it's not enforced anymore or adjudicated in an individual rights basis in a court of law on a case or controversy basis, but instead it provides business certainty to users so that they can gain access. When the DMCA was first drafted, it was two pages. Why? Because it focused on the principle of codifying contributory infringement and letting courts determine whether or not there had been infringement on a case or controversy basis. But, and I don't blame them, the businesses who could be held liable, who were the intermediaries, who were the users, said that is not enough for us. We don't wanna be dragged to court every single time something goes wrong and liability has to be determined. We want a system where we know that there is business certainty. And so, exceptions for um, research and encryption and exceptions for Um, particular types of uses by nonprofits and libraries and colleges and archives got put into the anti-circumvention piece. And then what started out as two pages turned it into 55 pages because we had to have a section for caching and a section for intermediate storage and a section for permanent storage. And then we had to have a complete uh, immunity provision, which had to be negotiated. I would tell you that all of those pages on that chart were developed for the user, for limitations, for exceptions. The actual protections are quite small. So if we wanna go back to the founders and have pure um, and exclusive copyrights without all the limitations and exceptions and compulsory licenses that followed, I don't think that that would provide the balance that you're seeking. The third thing that I wanna talk about is um, what really isn't related to the philosophy of copyright uh, and copyright policy that really is done based on what the United States feels is to her economic benefit. The reason why the United States joined Byrne and joined all those other countries and went with the moral rights construct that Europe had developed, I wish I could say it was because they believed in you know the principles of John Locke, but what really happened is we did such a good job of turning property into capital and creating that sort of mystery of capital that Hernando de Soto talks about in his book in America, that we became the biggest exporter of intellectual property. And we were losing out. So in the Dickens example, the anecdote had nothing to do with how much money Dickens was making. It had to do with whether or not people in the United States could make as much money as people in the rest of the world. And so when it it was actually Locke who came up with the idea of life of the author plus 50 years, I think. Um, It wasn't codified in the statute of Anne. The idea was that an author should be able to enjoy the fruits of his study and share it with his children and grandchildren and that property-like concept. But when they went to the moral rights construct under the 76 Act and the Berne Convention, the United States did it because the United States wanted the economic benefit so that it was protected outside the United States as much as foreign authors might be protected inside the United States and they were losing 20 years of economic benefit and we were the biggest exporters and we were making the most money. And they decided that for purposes of trade, they certainly didn't want American authors and the American economy to suffer. And you can see why, because when you look at how much of the American economy relies on copyrights, it's astounding. $134 billion in exports, $1.6 trillion to the US economy, exceeding foreign sales of other major industries, including aircraft, automobiles, agriculture, food, and pharmaceuticals. So there's an economic value here that does go to the consumer, but also goes to the economic benefits of the country. So I think that you've got two pieces that you have to put together if you're really going to account for copyright policy from the founder's time going forward. The first is, it really is a property right. it really did pre-exist the Constitution. It really is based on natural law, and it really is based on individual freedoms and individual rights that are adjudicated in courts based on cases and controversies like civil rights. They are given to us, our talents are not given to us by the government. We come before the government with them, and they can be reconciled with the um, uh, promoting the um, public good by giving us an incentive to create and by actually recognizing that there are a lot more users than there are creators. And the reason why you have to secure this in the Constitution as a right, like a civil right, is because if you leave it up to pure democracy, the users will outnumber the creators every day and the creators won't be able to invest and create and do what they want to do. Because if you have to choose who should have the control over a creation, if you're going to err, You should err on the side of the one that actually created what you are talking about. It is referred to the Judiciary Committee for that very reason, because it is a right. It is a property right. It is adjudicated. It's done on a case-by-case basis. Fair use was constructed as a defense, as a defense that might be different in every single case. It also has to be reconciled with other amendments to the Constitution. So I don't think that the case that the professor brought up would have been a case that the court would have had a copyright misuse analysis of. I think they would have had a First Amendment analysis. And they would have reconciled the First Amendment and the the inability to censor someone's speech through a shrink wrap license with the ability to have the individual exclusive right to enforce your creative rights against the rest of the world. And those two things go together, and they go together in the statutory codification of the copyright clause. There is a quote um, of um, a representative, Julian Verplanc was his name, and he was talking on the floor um, about the Copyright Act of 1831. And he said, the work of an author was the result of his own labor. It was a property right existing before the law of copyrights had been made. And so this is not a telecom issue alone that goes to the Commerce Committee with the FCC regulating it like the public airwaves. This is an individual right, it is a natural right, and 200 years of jurisprudence can't be turned away by calling it a privilege instead of a property right. So now to my olive branch, since I hopefully have been provocative uh, enough in my um, luxurious job of doing nothing but criticizing something that I didn't really have to work on. Um, and that is that <clears throat> I really do believe that, regardless of your philosophy and regardless of the disagreement between libertarians and conservatives and how this is viewed, that there are practical effects about the, cop- the current copyright system, most of which can be fixed in the marketplace, but that have a real um can have a real effect on consumer access and ultimately benefit the creator licensing is probably the biggest example the multiple rights that are involved in the creation of works the joint ownership that's involved in the creation of works and the ability to find who the owners are and to license them easily is a very very difficult question some of them have been dealt with because copyright Um, compulsory licenses have been imposed on people and trying to figure out how those compulsory licenses should be imposed or whether or not they should um, even exist sometimes um, is a big question. But figuring out clearinghouses and licensing is tough. And I can tell you in an industry that over the past 10 years has evolved from one that licensed one album at a time in a physical format to now licensing an entire service and 11 million tracks at a time on launch date. I can tell you that it takes a while, but it can be done. Formalities, user generated content has brought up the issue that While moral rights are important, not everybody wants to make or commercially exploit their works, and there is a difference between somebody who may have the responsibility to say to the world, hey, I intend to make a living from this, I'm a professional, I'm telling the world about that and I want respect for that, I wanna protect my rights. There may be ways to try to figure out the differences so that this fantastic um, criticism, uh, the notes of criticism that I made, It is technically copyrighted because I took my pen off the page. That doesn't mean I want to commercially exploit it. And there are certainly practical ways to try to deal with that. Orphan Works is another one that was mentioned. You know, if you can't find the owner of the work, and especially if you're a nonprofit and you want to use it for reasons that would benefit the public, then there ought to be a system. And I don't know if it's Jim DeLong's answer, and I don't know if it's the Copyright Office's answer from the Orphan Works debate that surfaced several years ago, but it's certainly something that should be talked about. We, the recording industry, sort of the ugly stepsister of copyright, didn't even get a federal copyright until 1972. Why? Other powerful interests wanted to make sure that we didn't get one so they could keep using stuff for free. Well, once we got it, now there's a disparity between state law, which can be much more effective in some cases, which may or may not include the DMCA in other cases, and which may be at odds with federal law and preemption in yet other cases. So my olive branch is... There are plenty of ways to work together on practical effects, but please, let's not pretend that this isn't a pre existing right. Let's not say that by renaming things, we're undoing almost 200 years of jurisprudence. Let's get together and see if we can work on some issues that need to be tended to. And thank you for having me.
0: I assume that our authors will want to respond to some of what they've heard. (laughs) A little bit.
2: Um, So I don't think, and I want
0: to thank Mitch for
2: for taking the time to really think about our work and and, and giving it a thoughtful response. I don't think that we are going to be able to uh, settle today whether copyright Uh, or the philosophical question of whether copyright is a natural right or or should be considered utilitarian, right? I don't think we're gonna necessarily all come to agreement on that, but I think we can look at the Constitution and think about what the the founders were thinking about when they were talking about the Constitution, writing the Constitution, and it is utilitarian. Um, Look, the legal sort of privilege uh, to enforce a copyright in court, to enforce the exclusive right in court didn't exist. Uh, uh, before the Constitution. Um, You certainly had, we're not saying that you didn't have your faculties to create beautiful music and your ability to uh, uh, make profit from that by using your common law rights to yourself, to your guitar, to your voice. That all certainly existed, of course it existed before uh, the the Constitution. But your ability to uh, exclude others uh, certainly did not exist uh, before the Constitution. And I'll ask this question. If it existed, why did the framers include the clause at all in the Constitution, right? The point I was making when I asked how many times is the word property in the text of the Constitution, the point I was making is that the founders took uh, property for granted. Um, But yet, copyright, they deemed it necessary to include a clause that says, Congress shall have the power to give authors exclusive rights. And so that brings me to, to the other thing, which is, Therefore, Congress can choose not to secure copyright to authors. Tomorrow, Congress could pass a law uh, revoking the Copyright Act and saying no more copyright, it doesn't exist anymore. But Congress could not do the same thing with property, right? Because property, you know, something that like, the founders took for granted, the Constitution merely recognizes it, does not create it, where copyright uh, is different. Um, I have to agree with you, I, I think, when you say, look, um, all of the, uh, So much of the text of the Copyright Act today uh, are exemptions uh, that are pro-user. I think we're agreeing that that, that, is, that that makes copyright today a regulatory phenomenon, and it shouldn't be that way. And if we go to the 1790 Copyright Act, the way Tom is proposing, uh, you wouldn't get that. So let's agree. Uh, let's not have tons of exemptions codified by bureaucrats in legislation or, worse yet, through sort of triennial uh, notice and comment uh, rulemakings at the Copyright Office, uh, let's just get rid of all of that. Let's have simple copyright and allow courts to develop the exemptions and allow individuals to use contract and their traditional common law rights to navigate around those. And I'll turn it to Tom.
3: I want to thank Mitch Glazer for your clarifying comments. It's it's wonderful to disagree about these things. Such an interesting topic. In fact, I look forward to your questions. I'm sure sure some of my fellow friends of freedom will be disagreeing with me. Good. And in the spirit of friendship, I want to offer some friendly advice. Pointing to the word secure in the Constitution is a very thin reed to rely upon. In fact, I would advise you if you want to protect the RIAA's interests to not claim that that copyrights a natural right, because I quote the Supreme Court, and this is still good law, from the 1932 case of Fox Films versus Doyle. Congress did not sanction an existing right, but created a new one. It is, they said, the creature of the federal statute. Now, that's the Supreme Court. I disagree with them on a lot of things. I happen to think they got it right here, but what I think doesn't matter, that is the law of the land. Also, uh, Mr. Glazer quoted Federalist paper... Uh, number 43, and I'm glad he did, because Madison engaged in a very tricky thing there. Here's the line that Mr. Glazer quoted, and I'll quote back to you. The copyright of authors has been solemnly adjudged in Great Britain to be a right of common law. That's a little bit like saying, oh, Madison, that's a little bit like saying the right to own slaves has been adjudged legal under U.S. law. Well, is that true? Well, it is. For a short time, that was true. Same was true when Madison wrote that about Copyright. He presumably was relying on Miller versus Taylor, a 1769 case, he was ignoring the case of Donaldson versus Beckett, which came just five years later, which overruled Miller versus Taylor, and in which the court said, there is no common law copyright. That so you can't point to Madison's comments, which are kind of sneaky, frankly, as proof of what the founders thought. I could say more about that, but I won't. Let's turn to the second point. We were told that, oh, in fact, Congress has frequently cut back on copyright because it's issued these voluminous provisions of the statute in which it carves out certain rights. Well, all right, let's take the DMCA as an example. So you say, well, the DMCA, they carefully protected people's rights to, for example, engage in encryption research when they reverse engineering. But it's all premised on lawmakers first taking away all the rights to engage in tampering with uh, protections on copyrighted works and then parsimoniously doling back a, a few little tidbits. After they've taken away all the rights, then they carve out a few very detailed, complicated exceptions. And that is not rolling back copyright. That's taking a lot and then throwing a few bones to the disappointed folks. What about this point about, we need the Berne Convention to make sure that American creators can make money from their sales overseas? Well, I understand the appeal of money, I do. I respect that. But that's not a good argument for the Berne Convention, because think about it, presumably Congress has done a great job in carefully tailoring copyright so that it doesn't do too much, it just gives enough incentives for people to create the works we like. And then they pass some sort of statute or they adopt the Berne Convention that, boom, opens up all these foreign markets, so now all this new money flows in. Well, hold on a second, if we're going to keep this balance, which Congress presumably struck, shouldn't they be cutting back on the domestic rights? if you have enough of an incentive to write your software now, and then now you've suddenly won the legal right to take money from Chinese people as well as American ones, shouldn't we be cutting back your right to take money from the Americans? Well, I think so, but that doesn't even seem to be considered. It's all about more money for the creators and more pointedly, the last thing I'll say, the holders of the rights. Mr. Glazer made an interesting point. He said, look, if you have to choose between the creator of the work and someone who wants to borrow that work to perhaps to create something new. You should always come down to the side of the creator of the work. Well, who do you think owns the rights to, for example, the musical works that so concern the Recording Industry Alliance of America? Not the creators. They signed those away. It's the publishers. And that's a rather different question. Should we favor the people who have purchased the rights from the original creators or the people who want to borrow those works to create new works? I'm not so sure about that, but it is a different and more accurate question that we should be asking. I'll stop there. Thank you. So I'm actually glad that we kind of went
0: toward first principle stuff. We are, after all, in the house of first principles yes, for Washington, D.C. But, but I'd like to take, before we go to the audience for q and I'm sure we'll have plenty, uh, let's, let's take up something that's more immediate. Uh, I've been hearing from a lot of folks about the upcoming rate setting by the Copyright Royalty Board. Uh, I'll, I'll try to describe what that is. There is a statutory licensing regime. That is, copyright holders uh, can't just hold on to things. They, they, uh, they, there's a statutory license, and so things will be shared, uh, will be used by others, subject to a statutory rate. And the Copyright Royalty Board is the, is the board that sets this rate. And apparently, in 2015, there's a new rate setting coming up. Uh, and there's evidently a, a different rates for different forms of broadcasting now. We obviously have radio broadcasting and satellite and internet and uh the the interested parties around town are gunning for this issue Uh, i wanted to ask mitch if you can flesh that that out any details i missed or any place any way i've gotten it wrong and tell us a little bit about it how we should be thinking about it and then we'll maybe we'll go to to to, to jerry and tom and get how they would think about this
4: i'll tell you my very opinionated version since i've been immersed in this for several weeks now. Um, there's great disparity in uh, different platforms under what's called the sound recording compulsory license. And the way that it works is that the government issues a compulsory license. So any recording, uh, any any owner of a sound recording is unable to choose whether or not they license that sound recording. The sound recording is automatically licensed as long as you meet the conditions of the government license and you pay the government rate. So it's a government price-fixing um, uh, statutory scheme that um, assures accessibility and it only applies to radio-like services on digital platforms. So if you are simulcasting AM and FM, if you are an original webcaster, if you have uh, a cable radio station or if you have a satellite radio station, In 1995, when Congress established the set of rights and created the compulsory license, they bifurcated it. And they said, if you are an on-demand service and you are going to be transmitted digitally, then you have to go into the free market and exclusive rights apply and you have to negotiate those rights. But if you are a radio-like service, then we're going to impose a compulsory license and the government comes in and fixes the price. Then the question has become... How are the platforms treated differently under that compulsory license and how is the rate set? And in one minute, uh, I will tell you that if you're sitting in your car and you're listening to the same song over the same speakers, depending on which of the four platforms you're doing it on, there's a very different way that the rate is calculated. If you're listening to a song on AM or FM radio where it's transmitted over the air, then the sound recording owner and the artist is paid zero, nothing if you are listening to the exact same song but that AM and FM station is being simulcast on the Internet and you're listening to it on iHeartRadio or something else, now they are paid under a rate that's called willing buyer, willing seller, meaning that since there is this real market over here, the government is at least constrained to look at what the real market would bear and base its price on the real market price. If you are listening to it on XM or Sirius, then it's a non-disruption rate and so we are paid but they got a special clause that was sort of grandfathered in 1998 that says you're going to pay a marketplace price discounted to make sure that we don't disrupt your particular business model or your particular investment even though in the world of tech and innovation, disruption is supposed to be good. This protects against disruption. And so there's sort of a you know, rent-seeking question. And then finally, you could be listening to it on Spotify on the same speakers, and they'd be paying a market rate because they negotiated it with the record company in the marketplace. Same song, same speakers, four different treatments, four different platforms. And what we've been arguing with Pandora uh, over the past several months is at least if there is a compulsory license, all platforms ought to be paying on a market-based rate. And you ought to at least look to the rate that Spotify pays discounted for functionality and have some real parameters instead of the government just making up whatever it wants or protecting against new business models and new innovation. And the poor copyright royalty board just has to do what it's told and look at the evidence over 18 months with 18,000 pieces of paper and lots of testimony from economists. And then they have to do what the government does really best. Set marketplace
0: rates. (laughs) (laughs) Thoughts?
4: Well, I want to thank Mitch for explaining in
2: fantastic detail what is wrong with our regulatory approach to copyright and illustrating why we need reform. You do indeed have this crazy disparity uh, that exists because you have compulsory licenses. If copyright uh, is so much like property, how can government compel you to license your, your rights. We, you know, Congress could not do that about your car or your house. It is not like property. It is you know, it's, it's precisely this is, is a problem. And then, after they compel you, they compel you to do it at a, a rate set by the government, by bureaucrats. This is price fixing. This is exactly what we should not be having. And it allows, as you say, for Congress, or in this case, the Royalty Board, to choose winners and losers. Uh, among these different... Uh, so let me interrupt real, really yeah. quickly.
0: Uh, does that mean we have agreement on there should be no statutory compulsory license? Or does that mean it just so feeds into the argument that this is not a... No, so, I, think, uh, so,
2: so I guess that, that goes to Mitch. When you talk about having a market-based market rate, do you really mean that we should have a rate that is negotiated among uh, parties? So we should go back to the 1790 Act and then just have folks negotiate their rates? Or do you mean a market-based rate that is set by bureaucrats?
4: I mean, in an ideal world, World. wouldn't it be lovely uh, to actually have a two-page copyright act that consisted of section 106 in the marketplace? Wouldn't that be lovely? I don't think that that would be appreciated by the very um, concerned commercial users who want to prevent um, liability and who want lots of trades for immunity and who want business certainty and who want a regulatory system so going to my fourth point which is let's get practical uh, and not ideal um the question is how do you remove the disparity and at least what we're saying is if we're going to be talking about licensing and you're going to have a compulsory license for the benefit of those using it at least base it on a real market
2: and can can i say just that i respect that because it shows you know, Mitch is being practical, because that, that's what your job is. My job is to be an idealist, and that's, that's what I'm working You have for. the
0: better job. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't this pay is, as well. This, this has been a great discussion so far. We're going to do some Q&A, though we don't have much time. The, 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 my instruction is to instruct you, please wait to be called on. It's a great idea. Wait for the microphone so everyone in the audience and, and uh, watching online uh, uh, can hear you. It says you should announce your name and affiliation, but I am a privacy guy, so you can speak anonymously if you want. There's one up in the back on the right. Up in the back,
5: on the right. Yep. Hi, I'm Christina Mulligan, a lecturer and postdoc at Yale Law School, and I contributed a chapter to the Copyright Unbalanced book. Um, and so well, that's I want
0: I didn't mean to call on you then. No, go ahead. <laughs>
5: Um, So I want to point out a rhetorical move that uh, Mitch Glazer made and comment on it, but then ask a different question. One is, uh, you immediately went to the, the theoretical issue. And I think that bypasses really what the point of the book was, was to say, you know, like practically down here, there's important questions beyond, is it a natural right? Is it utilitarian? You know, and the question that I've never had answered uh, when I speak to someone who works for the RIA or the MPA is when, most, uh, when the value of most works is extracted within about five years after it's created, why the need for a life plus 70 years of copyright protection instead of 14 plus 14? Similarly, if you get fined $100, $150 and have to spend a night or two in jail, if you steal a CD from a store, why is it at all reasonable to give someone an $80,000-a-song fine for downloading? But the comments that I wanted to make, which which really disappointed me, was on your comments we, of the history. We prefer, questions, really-
0: we prefer questions to comments, okay. but... Keep it um, brief. Thank you.
5: Th- it'll be very brief. Um, your, your comments on the history of copyright very much distort that history. And I, I'm very disappointed in that because I think you know better. So copyright was invented in 1709 in the Statute of Anne. That was a less restrictive alternative to England's licensing of printers, which all we all would agree is a terrible, terrible thing. And that was still a protectionist measure for the existing printers at the time. Um, and so th- that was a new idea. And it wasn't so much to protect authors, although it was cast that way, but to protect the existing interests of the printers. And that's what was brought down to the United States. Or that's the idea of copyright. That's its true origin. And secondarily, when you're talking about the exceptions in the DMCA, you know, there's no fair use rights to circumvent a technical protection measure. And so all those exceptions are really much, much weaker protections for people and they're long because they're very very minute and they only apply to the people that were at the table at the time It was being negotiated and so you lose fair use rights for any copyrighted work That's protected by a technical protection measure So I just wanted to highlight these distortions and and say that I think you you're aware of these things and that we could have a much More productive discussion if we were much more sort of clear on the details
4: I think my only response to that would be um, that I don't know better Um, I actually do believe um, that it is a natural right and a property right. There are, I think that there are a lot of uh, folks who wrote around the time that we need to look to and that if we don't look to them, that's the distortion. Thomas Paine in 1782, before the Constitution, and at around the time of the Continental Congress, issued a pamphlet, and in the pamphlet he said, the works of an author are his legal property, and it's critical for the country to, quote unquote, prevent depredation on literary property. That it was a critical function for the country nationwide, not just state by state. And the reason why the intellectual property clause was put into the Constitution, after it had already put, been put in by many states to their own constitutions or their own laws after the Continental Congress and before the Constitution, to make it. Something that was nationwide for this very reason. So I, I really don't know better. I really, I really
0: just agree with him. Second in the contest to be the most eager hand up in the room.
6: Uh, thank you, Scott Cleland, Precursor, uh, a for-profit model. Um, <laughs> I, I was. I'll be. I have one question, but uh, just to, to set it up, as I was really surprised that you, um, that the professors thought that. Uh, that free market conservatives and libertarians should rally around this. And I was um, I, the irony of not for- profit models, and especially the Professor Bell having at least what I heard was a sarcasm and a hostility and an envy towards profit to people that would want to own property and <laughs> profit from it. And so I just thought it would be helpful, though my question is is, what is the definition of free market? Does it include profit or is, more, is it more kind of the internet speak where free means no cost to the user, no permission needed by the user, and it's more, you know, free market is now an in internet commons?
3: Well, I can be very brief. I'm sorry, my friend, if I didn't convey the right tone. You might have noticed in the description Jim gave of my past, I worked at Cato. I was not being sarcastic. I like profit for me and for you and for everybody here. I hope we all make lots of money doing honest things. The question is whether or not copyrights deserve to be treated like property. And you've heard why I don't think so. Not entirely. It's not the best word. I'm not saying privileges should not be protected. Privileges are protected but they are treated differently from property, and I think for good reason.
0: Let's go here in the third row.
7: Thanks, I'm Jim Lowen. Uh, my very first book got pirated in Taiwan. Uh, my bestseller lies, my teacher told me, got published in China with agreement. And so I have a couple of questions for, for, for you guys. Um, if under the way you, s- you talked about that the founders didn't like the idea of replicating the whole work of kind of, but you know that's totally easy these days, you can take a whole book and blam stick it onto Kindle uh, or wherever you stick it. Um, it, it used to be you'd have to Xerox my whole book and that's 380 pages and it looks ugly and so on. it's not the same thing, so now that it is the same thing maybe we need you maybe you guys needed to speak to that i didn't hear anything in what you said about technology uh, mr glazier did say some things about it but um so th- that would be my first question my second question is if we do not have copy now the length of copyright is absurd these days i'm not defending that for a minute this but if we do not have copyright how do i even know where my book is being reproduced. I didn't know that that, uh, Taiwan had copyrighted, had had done this until my son came upon a copy of my book in Chinese at the University of Maryland Library. I thought that's kind of cool, you know, but it would have been nice if they had told me. I wouldn't have demanded very much, but so I don't even know where, and it could be used for all kinds of nefarious purposes too. So those are two challenges to you.
3: Again, I'll be really brief. I'd like to hear from more of you. So with regard to point number one, let me be clear. The founders did bar complete copies of works. They would not have extended US law to China, of course, but that's exactly the kind of reproduction they worried about That's point one. And with regard to point two, I guess I'd say, um, I guess I'd say I wanna let Jerry say something.
2: (laughs) Well, I want to acknowledge that um, it's absolutely the case that uh, today's digital technology and the internet uh, makes it much more easy uh, to pirate and to uh, take uh, protected works. Uh, and so as a result, uh, we do have to uh, look at how that uh, should be addressed. Um, the problem is, is that as you mentioned, uh, so I guess I, w- I wanna sort of separate a couple things. We have agreement, uh, you and I, that copyright terms are uh, uh, way too long, uh, to, to, to quote what you just said. So I don't see how a copyright term extension which I really uh, uh, believe we'll be seeing in the next few years, a move for another retroactive term extension, how that would help the piracy problem. Right? So let's agree, at least, on, 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 on where we can where we're agree. And when it gets to piracy, yeah, let's work together to find solutions to that. But they shouldn't include, uh, uh, for example, take the Stop Online Piracy Act, which went to address that. It had some real problems uh, with regarding uh, due process. Uh, it had problems uh as to regulating uh the uh, the way the internet works so while I agree with you new technologies make it easier uh, to copy and uh do so illegally we should address that but let's not you know but let's be very careful about how we do that
4: mitch um let 's go Back to what uh, sort of Jerry said in the beginning, I said it as well, and that is Jim DeLong, who's getting a lot of play today. I wish he was in the room. (laughs) Um, But I, I really thought his NRO piece was really very good. Here's what he said, the question of dealing with internet piracy is damned hard and no one has a good answer, true realistically the system can tolerate a lot of leakage at the retail level as long as creators retain the right to move against commercial grade piracy. It's also important that content producers and telecom distributors be free to strike bargains about piracy prevention. It's far more efficient for Verizon or Comcast to police piracy than for battalions of lawyers to do so. I think what he's referring to is voluntary agreements that are in both sides interest between those who are intermediaries and those who own the content so that they they can work out um, solutions that really work in three ways one it works for the benefit of the creator Two, it works for the benefit of the distributor the intermediary and then finally it works for the consumer if it's done in a way that's educational and that informs them of their rights and so I think that's where we're going on mass commercial internet piracy because we have to, and it's a little bit like licensing, and it sort of goes to you know, my olive branch at the end, which is that we all have an interest in solving this, and as distributors and intermediaries figure out that one of the only places to make money on the internet besides advertising and search is content, they're going to realize that just like content used to be a broadband driver, or piracy might have been a broadband driver, now piracy is, terrible, especially if you're a cable ISP, because somebody who pays the same cost is clogging up the hub with a whole bunch of stuff that nobody's paying for. There have to be those economic interests on all sides. People have to get together, and I think you'll see more of it in the near future.
0: So we're running very short on time in this excellent discussion. Let me take one more question uh, over here uh, in the second row.
1: Hi, Sandra Starts from uh, the Copyright Alliance. Um, I'd like comments from Mr. Burdon and uh, Mr. Bell about where you think the individual creator um, finds protection in your proposed systems. Um, And in particular, if you think about the situation that, for instance, a a photographer uh, may find himself in, um, you're commenting on the need to reduce um, uh, registration terms uh, and to increase formalities on registration. If you think about... Um, a professional photographer who does intend to protect his works and to make a living from those works. A a photographer may register um, thousands of images uh, that he has taken in one weekend's shoot. Um, That registration uh, uh, requires uh, formalities on, on the individual registrant's part. It requires fees on the individual registrant's part. Part of the reason why formalities have been reduced is to take care of individual uh, rights owners and to make sure that uh, those professional creators don't fall out, those works don't fall out of protection inadvertently. Uh, How do you propose to address uh, those sorts of uh, individuals in your system?
2: Sure, so uh, uh, taking the example you give of a photographer who maybe does wedding photography, let's say, on a weekend. Um, number one, I'd say that a protection term of 14 years, renewable for 14 more, so it's 28, which is what Tom's proposing, um, should more than adequately allow that person uh, to be compensated for their work. As for formalities, um, we ha- we're we now in a world where with thanks to technological advancement, um, we can fashion those formalities to not be as onerous as one might think, right, or as onerous as they might have been uh, back in the day of the founders where you had to you know, take your carriage to the uh, district courthouse. So you can imagine, um, uh, first of all, when we say, what is it you have to register? Well, you don't have to register each individual photo that you take at the wedding. You maybe register, we, we, maybe we consider the entire uh, wedding shoot the work uh, so, that they're, so that they're all included. Um, you wouldn't have to go anywhere because you can imagine today we could do it online over the Internet. And as far as a fee, it could be a dollar, um, but the point is, is that we want to we want you to take an affirmative step to say, I want to claim this this privilege, and not just automatically give it to everybody, which uh, creates the orphan works problem, among other things. Actually, under copyright law, currently, you do register a whole collection of works under one registration.
1: So, for instance, you can register, you know, a whole year's worth of that's great.
2: Yeah. Exactly, which is why... You end up with an works absolutely. So you can't trace back to the owner. Absolutely, which is why what we're proposing would be formalities that would then have a database where you could search. Absolutely, agree right. with you. And
1: so have, so then what is the solution for the individual register? You could. to register every single
0: image. No, you How could. Is he going to identify that image so that it's searchable? Jerry, for online audiences, why don't you repeat the question in brief?
2: Sure, the question, uh, if the follow-up question is... Um, How do you create this uh, searchable database that would be created through uh, registration uh, if you just are registering one entire shoot uh, as uh, a work? Look, um, we could have this back and forth, maybe it'd be best to do it later, Uh, but I think what we're arguing over is uh, technology. Is it technologically possible to solve this problem? I think the answer is yes. I imagine that um uh you know files have individual unique identifiers that when uploaded you know etc i mean i think this is a technological problem that we're arguing over not one of principle
0: the idea of continuing the conversation is an excellent one i misspoke at the outset we won't we won't uh, have sandwiches uh, in the Winter Garden, but instead upstairs in the, on the second level in the George M. Yeager Conference Center. So go up the spiral staircase or, or take the elevators if you want to use the restrooms. They are available on the second floor on the way to lunch. My instructions say look for the yellow wall. That is not an example. There will be doors along those walls to uh, to go through. Uh, but first, please join me in thanking our, our speakers, Jerry Brito, Tom Bell, and Mitch Glazer for an excellent presentation. Thank you.